The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Today I am joined by Alessandro Hatamai, who is the managing partner of Pacemakers. Alessandro, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, David. It's Hatami, by the way, not Hatamai. Man, I'm going to keep getting that wrong all the way through this, so uh, you're going to have to live with that one, I'm afraid. Absolutely. So, Alessandro, tell everybody where we first met. Well, we met at Lloyd's. I, it was my first banking job, and I got, got into Lloyd's to help them uh, change their digital proposition and shake things up a bit, and you were there being shaken, so it was a, it was a real fun time. And you're doing some amazing things, and we got to know each other then. So, it's a long time ago now. It was. It feels like a, quite a sort of a, a lifetime ago, really. Five, six years, I think. Yeah, scary. That feels like a lot longer, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And now, fintech years, right? Indeed, exactly. There's got to be like a fintech dog years thing going on <laughs> that we need to sort of figure out there. But. Yeah. Uh, and, and now Pacemakers. So tell us yes. a little bit more about what you're doing today. Well, the Pacemakers is a business that is focused on getting uh, innovation implemented. So there's a lot of companies out there that actually focus on thinking innovation, coming up with ideas, etc. Our focus and actually is making things happen. So we're a team of very experienced professionals that have done it before. We work with organizations to help them implement what they've done. And we do this by helping, helping them partner with the right companies. So in a funny sort of way, what we do, we have three stages approach, but we are very similar to a headhunter, if you want. So we have a phase one, which we understand the needs of the company, understanding how whatever they want to do fits with their existing skills. And we help them understand what the requirements are to deliver an idea that they already have. So we don't challenge them with their ideas, but we help them develop what they already have. And we end up that process by creating a short list of companies that potentially could be ideal partners. And that's our first tranche. Then we, if that's acceptable to them and they're happy with what we've done, we move on to helping them sign up and recruit the right company that works with them. And we help them in, in contractuals, or we help them sign, sign up exactly what the relationship should be like. And we do this all within the framework of the bank, so or the organization we work with. We don't go out of the processes and we work with them. And then once that they've signed them up, we remain available for handholding to make sure that delivery happens. And we've done that a couple of times already, uh, mainly on the continent, and it's working out really well. That's great. There's, uh, you know, usually the where to start first is the, the biggest problem, isn't it? So having somebody to, to sort of guide them through that. And I like to say, I guess, the more you work with those types of suppliers, the more you know the ones to go to, which is awesome. Absolutely. And the thing is, we, we work with companies that have already tried to implement, and oftentimes they have tried and they have come up with really good ideas that have not come to fruition. And we help them identify what were the things that they could have done differently to make sure that that happens. And we find that working with partners that have experience, that have a certain skills that you don't have internally, oftentimes helps them accelerate this in a way that the rest of the organization is also able to appreciate. 
So give me a bit more of your background then. So before pacemakers, before yeah. Lloyds, what were you up to? What, was, what got I'm you an to engineer hit? and okay. I used to build roads and railways in Africa. Wow. And then I went to business school and I started working with G Capital. So I got into financial services then. And I built G Capital's first European website in, in 1999. Um, and that's how I got hooked up with uh, FinTech and digital. It wasn't called FinTech then, it was called the internet. And uh, we moved on from there to a variety of other roles. I spent some time at PayPal. I helped them build their large merchants business, uh, uh, taking them from peer-to-peer to a more uh, established payment proposition. I then was the CEO of PayPoint.net, the managing director of PayPoint.net, which is an online payments business. And then where we met, I joined Lloyd's as CEO of Digital Banking and the Group Innovation Director, where I got very much hands-on in working with the smaller firms and the bigger firms and understanding the conflict between and the opportunities between large and small firms. And do you think, I guess that set you up perfectly for doing what you do now, really? You know, that Absolutely. blending of uh, a kind of a startup experience in terms of where you're at and also a big scale, how hard it is to do it in a bank. So you've got some sympathy for the people you work for as well. I, I, tot- I totally do. Uh, and uh, what I try to appre- make people appreciate is that large organizations often are not designed to be innovative. They're designed to be predictable, reliable, repetitive, and so on and so forth. So when, you fa- when they're facing a situation where they have to completely change what they're doing, they really need to reposition that innovation in a way that the rest of the organization doesn't see it as a threat, but sees it as an opportunity. So instead of saying, I have this fantastic proposition that will change the way you engage with customers, it's revolutionary, it's disruptive, you just say, if you do this, you get 3% more sales. And even though it's identical, you will sell the 3%, you will not sell the disruptive. So these are some of the things to look out for. It's healthy tension, isn't it, in terms of doing it? Well, obviously, companies that have set themselves up to be innovative are yeah. people like Apple and Google and Facebook. And totally. you wrote a really interesting piece in June, I think it was <clears throat> last year, how the big tech firms are going to really sort of come into this space. Because I guess some of this is coming to fruition even just this week, really. Well, interestingly, one of my clients is actually a big community of, of consumers that are thinking of entering the financial services space. Now, what, what I think is going to happen is that uh, customers are increasingly disaffected with their banks. And they're feeling more and more that the banks are not their friends and so on. Uh, there's a lot of providers on the back end that are able to provide you with banking financial services, banking and financial services that actually are better potentially than what the bank can offer. So a situation where you would have the ability of offering a banking service through an additional, a third party provider like a social media network or a hardware provider, and my piece was on hypothesizing an, app, uh, an Apple bank, will probably find good, good, good interest in the, in the public. And I'm thinking about examples that are already taking place in China. For example, if you look at WeChat and WeChat Pay, they are providing a variety of banking services intertwined with their social services. So it's, it's a proposition that enables a bank to provide services to the customers of WeChat without having to actually become a bank themselves. So WeChat is not a bank, but is, well, now it is. But at the time, did not need to be a bank. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here for, uh, for social media, social networks, uh, telcos, and you see it with Orange Bank in Germany, for example, uh, retailers, and we see it all over the place, in engaging with financial services provider to become an alternative to the bank, an alternative that customers can actually feel more engaged with, and be able to wrap their proposition of financial service proposition with other services that the community benefits from, and therefore have an actually an all-in better outcome for the customer. Yeah. Well, it's, it is amazing, the, you know, the landscape, since both of us were at Lloyd's, you know, the landscape of banking yeah. has changed quite dramatically, hasn't it? So you'd even, particularly in the UK, with all of the, the people we're seeing coming into the market, 
How do you see the next, I guess, six or seven months playing out? Because with Starling and Atom and Monzo and Tandem and you know all of these movements, uh, either from a technology perspective, uh, you know, big tech firms coming in, yeah. it, it feels like we're in a bit of a pressure cooker over the next year, really. I think there's interesting challenges all, all around. I think these the new banks are providing a service that is superior to what the incumbent banks are providing. The challenge that these new banks have is that access to customers and access to capital is limited for them. So uh, when you have tens of thousands or even low hundreds of thousands of customers compared with the millions that the big guys have, it's really hard for you to get an impact, to be, be impactful. Firstly. Secondly is the access to capital. And if you think that the average bank spends between one to two billion a year on IT, of which 75% goes to maintenance, but the remainder is quite a bit of money. So if you imagine a specific bank receiving those remaining 200, 300 million dollars a year, uh, that's a lot of money and you could do a lot. And n- none of these, these startup ch- challenger banks are getting that. So access to capital is going to be a, cha- a challenge. So that's on the challenger bank side. On the big bank side, they have complexities and problems that are based on legacy and legacy, not just IT legacy that we all know about, but there's also a series of processes and procedures on top of that legacy, which um, makes them hard to be able to innovate and to become truly digital. And you, you'll find that ideally, an ideal outcome would be that these, the incumbent and the challenger work together to create something that is meaningful. So one, the challengers get access to capital and access to customers, and the big bank get, get an, uh, access to an alternative way of doing business. Now, there are some tricks to this. And one, the fundamental one is not letting the cultures clash in a way that uh, one of the two gets obliterated. It's usually the young, the smaller organization. And I think a few banks are doing this the right way. So they're creating subs of companies that they own that are relatively isolated from the rest of the organization, possibly in markets that they're not very big in. Um, and that's a good model. There's many other models also. But I think that what we'll see in the next few years is an increased collaboration between the large and the new and seeing new products. So that's on the traditional side. I think what we'll see also is non-banking communities finding that this engagement with fintech startups and banks using a digital channel enables them to actually include financial services in their core service proposition. And we've seen with Facebook, with all the series of proposition that they have. They recently added a TransferWise bot, and I think they're doing a lot of interesting things there. Um, obviously, the extreme is WeChat with what they've done there. I think there's we're going to be seeing the emergence of the non-bank bank uh, providing a service. And more interestingly, what these guys do, which is possibly the big problem that the whole financial services community has, is that we financial services providers think that customers have a desire for financial services. Uh, but nobody wakes up in the morning dreaming of a credit card or a personal loan. They think about a holiday or buying a home and things of that kind. So uh, the social networks are actually understand that better. So on WeChat, when you pay for your restaurant or your taxi, you're not using a payment device. You're just fulfilling your desire to have eaten a nice meal. Uh, so that's, I think, what we see. So the emergence of this collaboration, but also the arrival of these non-banking players. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely see that playing out. I think one of the you know, major things that usually people use as a potential inhibitor here is sort of customer loyalty and yeah. even the, you know, the, the relative low amounts of uh, switching that you would see in that space. Trust is also a, a big totally. part that's played into that. How much do you think the challenger banks coming into this space can overcome some of those elements? I think they, they, they have a challenge as a challenger bank to face the issue of trust. Um, I think in this instance, the regulator can play a very strong role. 
uh, the regulators can come and guarantee certain levels of, of safety and security or guarantee that these banks are a safe place to put your money in. And also, I think a partnership with a well-established, trusted brand could also help. If, if I put my money in Apple Bank, it's unlikely that the biggest company in the world is going to go bust and my money disappears. So that's, that's one dimension. Another interesting aspect also is the type of product. I think if you're borrowing from someone, you're more confident and comfortable in uh, accepting the money. So, but if you're giving your life savings to somebody, uh, you may be wanting a high, having a higher threshold of security and trust to one that takes money from you and saves it for you, vis-a-vis the one that gives it to you. Mm. So I think you'll see that's why we're seeing peer-to-peer, the lending side of the peer-to-peer be more successful oftentimes than the saving side of peer-to-peer. It would be really interesting. I've never thought about this before, but actually if Apple did create a bank, they could securitize it against the hardware that you bought from them already, right? Interesting. So securitize your loan against your £1,000 iPhone in terms of doing it. That might be a really interesting model. It's interesting. I think what they, they won't do it themselves, but they th- definitely could partner with a third party that does that. Because I think a lot of these social networks like the fact that by working with a partner, they don't have to be regulated. Yeah. And they're happy to do an e-money license because it's relatively low key. But I think if you have to get a true banking license, a lot of them would say, uh, the amount of investment I need to do in this is way lower than other opportunities that I have. And therefore, they prefer not to be regulated. That's why partnerships, I think, are going to be key. So one of the things that you've, you've done, uh, I think, actually, while you were at Lloyd still and, and since then is yeah. uh, mentor in a lot of different places. I guess this dynamic must have changed the way in which you're seeing some of those startups actually operating. You know, have you seen the, the mechanism that fintechs, are, the fintechs that you're mentoring sort of change over that period? Well, I think the mentoring that I do for fintechs uh, it has is twofold. One is is a situation where they present a model, a business model proposition, and I help them sort through the challenges and difficulties that they will be finding in in delivering that. And actually, I find that's the more most rewarding part of mentoring because what happens there is that there's a problem to be solved. They have put a solution together, and I sit there very pompously telling them this is the way it's done. And then suddenly they come up and say, and they ask me that question that actually leaves me legless. And the question is, why do we have to do it this way? And oftentimes, well, it's we have to do it because this is and that. And then I say, well, no, it doesn't need to be done this way. So I think that's one of the thing, big thing about these chat, these startups is that actually they, they shake your core beliefs, you know? And I find that something incredibly refreshing, especially if somebody's been around as, as long as I have, to be challenged once in a while. Now, sometimes what they say is, uh, for lack of a better word, idiotic, and therefore you need to help them a bit in, in taking through it. But that's very infrequent. You, you, most of these guys are incredibly smart, guys and girls, I have to say, incredibly smart in putting together propositions that are truly disruptive. Now, that's one part of my, my coaching. So I help them actually help think things through and think, think of it from the perspective of the customer and possible channels that they get to use. Another area that I help them with is how to position yourselves if you have to work with a partner that is bigger than you, and how to engage with them in a way that does not waste your time and waste your resources and actually gets to something delivered. So I oftentimes uh, find them, make sure that when you're talking to somebody for creating a pilot, make sure that they have a PL, make sure that you have a decision maker that has a need that you resolve involved in the proposition. Realize that sometimes the innovation teams are great ways in, but they're not going to be the ones that will build the final relationship with you, with your, with your end, the customer. And oftentimes think about what is the problem they're trying to solve and solve that rather than 
expect them to understand where your proposition fits, which a lot of startups actually do. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Sometimes it's a, either a technology looking for a solution or a solution looking for a, an answer. And it's a, you know, a dif- difficult mix, isn't it, sometimes? But it's, a, it's good to have somebody like yourself sort of uh, helping navigate some of those things. So. Well, you're, you're very kind. But the thing is, it's, it's, it's pretty egotistical because I get a lot more, I think, sometimes from them than they get from me. <laughs> uh, this, this way, different way of looking at things actually keeps you much fitter in being able to do all the other stuff that I do. So this challenge that they bring about, I think, is incredibly valuable. And you must have seen some really interesting propositions coming through. So uh, what, what are some of the interesting things that you've seen, uh, I guess, from some of the companies you've been mentoring? Uh, well, I just mentioned one, if that's OK. Uh, Everledger, I think, is a really fun company. They thought about using the, the blockchain in a creative way as an asset registry. Uh, they're starting off in look, looking at the, the diamond space. And because Leanne, the, the founder, actually one of the very few female CEOs, uh, and she's an incredibly charismatic uh, person, they've created this directory to actually being able to track the provenance of a diamond that you purchase, which has implications on, on insurance, uh, on loans, and a variety of things. But as a concept, that can be rolled out to a variety of other assets, from automobiles to mobile phones to road building equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's uh, the potential there is enormous. And I thought I really liked the fact that she was so focused and the whole team was so focused on resolving one problem, being aware that this solving this problem could actually solve a variety of other problems. So Everledger is a good one to mention. Well, and, and they've won everything going, right? You know, totally. Leanne is a, uh, an absolute force of nature, isn't she? She's a superstar. Which is, uh, which is good. Um, one of the things that you wrote about recently, and actually I think you sort of touched on this a, a second ago, was the sort of changing dynamic between banks and fintechs. Yes. The sort of partnership approach, I think, you know, Santander wrote about collaboration and the, the sort of fintech two piece in terms of where we're moving. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the, the piece that you wrote at the back end of last year, actually, yeah. talking about the, the biggest ones of those throughout the year. So maybe talk about that a little bit, because uh, yeah. you know, it's a definite change in the market, isn't it? Well, I, I liked uh, this certain trends happening, and I, and I tried to create a scheme about how these, what type of partnerships we have. And I think we have the big bank and the fintech, you have the fintech on fintech, and then you have the non-bank and the fintech. Um, I think what is, what is interesting is uh, a trend that I think is coming very much from France of looking at the big banks, actually France and Spain, looking at the established banks buying challenger banks and doing it in a way that guarantees their, their isolation and insulation. If you look at BCP and Fidor's relationship, uh, Fidor is a German bank, BCP is the second biggest bank in France. Um, they've come together in creating, uh, Fido got acquired by BPC. They've had left them relatively independent. And Fido now has much broader shoulders and much greater capability, access to, to another regulator beyond the German regulator they were doing. And they are able to go to market with a platform solution that enables them to serve a variety of players. Interestingly, the first big one they've done is with O2. Telefonica in Germany, and they've created an amazing new bank, which is has all the bells and whistles of a current account in an app, plus as a loyalty program, you get gigabytes. And that's become the currency of, of, of the loyalty program, which is which is relatively low cost for the provider O2. It is also high value because people can exchange them, send it to the family, and so on and so forth, and enhances the banking proposition. So I think it's a really interesting story that we see there. On the fintech to fintech. I think a number, a good example is number 26 and TransferWise coming together. Um, they are now number 26 becomes more similar to a bank because of this, this uh, thing. And they can add other services as they grow and they grow a license. But this concept of a financial services hub working with fintechs 
is, is a really interesting one. And again, obviously, we mentioned quite a few partnerships on the uh, fintech to non-banking world. And I think, obviously, uh, what Facebook is doing with all the bots in the front, with Azimo and more recently with TransferWise and PayPal, I think are a really good example of how these non-banks can actually become vehicles and channels for banking services. So these are the three. Yeah, well, there's, there's so many, isn't there? And I think, like you say, it was a real trend for last year in terms of, you know, many people sort of learning to share, really, in terms of yeah. what they're doing. How are you seeing that going forward? I know you're, you're presenting on your Money 2020 in Copenhagen, I, aren't you? So, I, I am. In fact, I'm talk, working, talking about APIs in that context, oh, okay. which is, I think, the, the next big thing, yeah. which, uh, which will accelerate all of these partnerships. The APIs will change will change that dramatically. I think what we'll see in the next few months is an increase in partnerships. And I think these partnerships will become more uh, more unusual than we have thought. So there will be more fintech on fintech partnerships. And I think we'll see more banks realizing that a good way of accelerating is partnering. In fact, a lot of things that the pacemakers does is actually helping these banks identify the right company to partner with that actually fits well with what they want to do. Uh, and then we're going to see a lot of non-banks exploring the banking world in, again, doing it through partnerships. Uh, I think the acquisition, uh, I actually, interestingly, I put acquisition as the final uh, evolution of a partnership, if you want. And I think, interestingly, we will see, I think, in the next few months, a lot more operational partnerships, some of which will lead to uh, acquisitions. Now, the interesting thing is some of these partnerships will fail which is actually a good thing because right now that way you know that's why a certain fund proposition does not work. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot less expensive than having bought a company and realizing you can't work with them. So. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, through APIs and maybe post-PSD2, <coughs> then actually at the moment most of the partnerships are sort of consenting to a certain degree, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They're, we've got this partnership, we've got this customer base, you've got this customer base, yeah. you know, how can we work together? Whereas sort of post-PSD2, then, you know, the, the whole thing of that is anybody can access those things if you're getting permission of the customer. So, yes. you know, the dynamic there changes quite dramatically, not wanting to steal your presentation from uh, from Copenhagen. That must be a real key part of that, I would have thought. Well, I think fun- it's fundamental. I think what will happen is, uh, if you look at the API in general, PSC2, an example for the European version, but APIs for a big bank, which is the biggest uh, entity that has been affected by these APIs, it's put an opportunity and a threat. I think on the threat side, you see the arrival, the ability, the, the risk you run of opening up your database to uh, third parties. And these can be other incumbent banks, but also challengers of a variety of kinds. And in that way, customers can actually migrate more rapidly from you to them. And customer and your, comp- your competitors can provide potentially better pricing based on your usage data of this customer, which is a bit of a, a shame. Then there's a second layer of disintermediation. If I'm not a bank, I could actually use these APIs to create a, a version of your bank without calling it bank. So Apple is an example, but it could be anybody. So you'd think you're going to Apple Bank, in reality is Lloyd's Banking Group or, or HSBC behind it. Um, then there's the whole aggregation space. And you can have these players that come in and compare all your products. So you become, you know, on with API, already with online, you're relatively naked online, but with APIs, you're completely naked. So all propositions that a bank has are completely exposed to their customers. So the customers know, know exactly and not just in terms of T's and C's, but actually with their own numbers, how they would fare. And I think these aggregators will get an injection of, of, of strength in, in their proposition. Now, if you take the concept of what an API can deliver to an extreme, and you these aggregators can actually start authenticating and start creating a variety of means of helping, helping you actually migrate from one bank to the other seamlessly, 
and that be, that makes the whole banking chain bank switching become a lot more accelerated. So I think once the APIs get implemented, uh, provided PSD2 will be implemented in this country post Brexit, provided that the APIs will be as dynamic as everybody promises, et cetera, et cetera, I think we'll see bank changing your bank account becoming almost a trivial thing. Uh, and that that's going to be a challenge. The fourth challenge I think you have is cybersecurity, because you're opening a back door to your platforms. Uh, unless you, if you've done your API right, you shouldn't be you shouldn't have a problem. But uh, hackers will find a way in, so it's a constant moving uh, battle, and then you have to be engaged with them at all times. So I think whatever risk the banks currently have with their traditional online banking with APIs that could be augmented. That's on the threat side. On the opportunity side, banks can become more efficient. So they can start thinking about dynamic pricing at the point of engaging. They can do a lot better marketing because they have much broader things. We worked on a project together with at Lloyd's with a loyalty program based on usage of, and this was in partnership with a company called Cardlytics many years back. Um, every bank could do something like that and it could do it more creatively. Uh, and again, the authentication can be a risk that an aggregator does, but also can be a service that the bank provides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also we could see emergence of new third-party providers. Like for example, they could provide scoring of consumers without actually have forcing the banks to upload all the customers' information. So the, these providers could actually receive algorithms from the bank to do the scoring on behalf of the banks. And the bank says, you know, David Bria is coming to me. What's his score? It's 75. And what it is based on an algorithm that resides somewhere else. So the, the security issues are completely resolved. So there's a lot of interesting models that you could think of. Yeah, I can never get away from that terrible credit scoring that I've got. You know, 75. But, uh, That's what you deserve. Though, but you, know, you <laughs> spent too much money, too much indeed. champagne. Indeed. But I, I love the idea of uh, with APIs, you're naked. I think we've just probably seen a, <laughs> an insight into a slide for, for Copenhagen. So I, I know, I me like that. that, yeah. Indeed. Yeah, that'd be nice. So I guess um, you brought it up, so we, we might as well talk about it. So uh, as a uh, European living in the UK, I, I think you've got a couple of different passports, haven't you, in different... I have two passports. Uh, I don't have a British passport, even though I've been here for 22 years. Okay. I have an Italian passport and an Iranian passport, okay. uh, which makes it impossible for me right now to travel in the States. <laughs> uh, so how does Brexit sort of make you think differently? Or what's your perspective on what's, A, what's happened to date and where you think it's going yeah. to take us? Well, there's an emotional dimension because uh, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in the world. So I felt at home and now I have to get a passport to feel at home. So that's a bit of a challenge. And uh, the application is a bit complicated, as many of you know. Now, the other interesting dimension for me is how is this going to affect my industry? And I think one of the strengths of London has been the fact that it was the first port of call of any company trying to serve the European Union. And these companies come here and you look outside the, the windows here, you can see HSBC and a few others and Citibank and etc. They came to, to London because London was a beautiful place to live in, fantastic quality of life, but also it had a very good regulator and a good legal system. And they could be based here to serve 500 million people. Now, post-Brexit, if the passporting doesn't happen, the market of 500 million goes down to 60, uh, uh, which is obviously a reduction in that. So they will have to establish a base in Europe. And even though all the skills are currently here, there will be some kind of a diminishing the diminishing importance for London, even if I hope very slight affecting that. Secondly is, so that's that, that that's the presence of these companies, which has resulted in a quality of talent that is superior to anywhere else in Europe. And the reason why all these talented people are here is because they could make their first salaries coming to UK, to the UK, working with one of the big banks. After a while, they decide, okay, I can go to a startup. And that's created an injection of, of talent in a lot of the startups that we see. One third of startups are, if, I, if I'm quoting the right number, are founded by uh, non 
UK residents that are Brits, that are European. Yeah, third, third of founders, 50% of funding is external to the UK, which is amazing, isn't it? It is, so because, because London operates as a hub for Europe and it's always been a hub. Now with the Brexit, with Brexit coming through and companies divesting, uh, in part even, uh, from here to other markets, that's going to be diminished. If access to talent is reduced, right now we have access to European talent can walk in through the door and they can start working and the rest of the world through applications and through a whole, uh, through a process, which is not terrible, but it's, it's a process. Uh, after Brexit, we won't have that easy access of hiring any European. We will have to go through a process that is slightly more mechanical. And oftentimes, if, if I help get an employee come in and uh, they are perfect, uh, fine, there's not a problem. If I have gone through a whole series of applications and the employee comes in and the employee is no longer good, and I've asked them to relocate here, how, how comfortable I feel to let them go, knowing that if I let them go, they will have to leave their home and family and so on and so forth over here. So I think that is going to be... Uh, an emotional dimension on top of people's uh, perspective. And as a startup, I see my, my costs suddenly jump up on the post-Brexit because if passporting doesn't happen, I will have to be regulated in two places, or I can accept I'm going to only operate in the part in the area where the by local regulator, the FCA, gives me control of, and that's the UK. So I have two choices. Either I become, I reduce my objectives for growth, or I accept higher costs. Both ways, it will impact my valuation. So, so it's a, it's a, we don't know, it feels negative, but we're going to have to wait and see how negative. I'm optimistic and I'm keeping my hopes up that uh, they will put a deal together that is viable for everyone. Fingers crossed, we'll see where we go. When we worked together, I came to you for all different types of advice and I think usually it was keep my mouth shut. I think that was the main, main advice that yeah, you gave fair. me. Okay. But, um, but what, what type of advice do you give to, uh, or what would be the key type of advice you would give to somebody trying to get into fintech? Because fintech is a, an amazing place right now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really seen as the, the kind of sexiest side of, of banking. So uh, what would you give the advice to, to get into it? Well, I think if you think about how the internet affects financial services, uh, when it started off, it became a channel. So uh, marketing guys where the, where the digital guys with marketing guys. Then it became a cost-saving opportunity. So IT became heavily involved in digital. And I think now we're seeing the third way, which is uh, products. So people are rethinking, okay, what digital allows me to have is a one-to-one -one dialogue with my customer. And therefore, I suddenly realized that the banks especially are no longer a provider of financial product. They're providing of a means to reach a, product, a, a desire that the customers have. And through digital, people or banks are increasingly seeing themselves as an enabler that, rather than a product provider. So they're no longer, you know, you know better than I do. In the early noughties, uh, even mid-noughties, uh, people would say that the branches were like stores and we have products. I think that concept of store is disappearing and the concept of, of a relationship with the, with the customer, developing propositions that are required for them to achieve what the objectives that they have is becoming more and more important. So my advice to anybody thinking of getting into fintech is don't think product, but think customer need mm -hmm. and how you can use the digital environment that you are provided to facilitate the access of a customer to a need that they current, that they have, but is not fulfilled. So forget about loans and credit cards and overdrafts. Think about how do I enable this customer to go on holiday? How do I enable this customer to buy a home? Yeah. That type of thing. Sounds like a good one. So obviously with everything that you're doing at the moment, you're, you know, super busy in terms of the, you know, the time. So what's your productivity hack that, what's your kind of advice around that? Because A, I could give <clears> you some <throat> advice, but B, clearly you've uh, kind of got this all figured out. Well, uh, well, I don't, but um, I think and my partner can confirm that that's not the case. <laughs> I think lists, taking down lists is a very fundamental, important 
skill that one has to develop. And I try to do that, but um, I also try to keep it real because some people say when you take a list down, you make sure you have, you complete everything on your list by the end of the day. I think don't be thinking you're a superhero. Just do as much as you can, but make sure that you, the items that are there, you push to the next day. Yeah. Uh, but uh, trying to break down complex, complex tasks to specifics and then make these tasks on a list that you can actually access, I think is the, I the best way. I completely live by that myself, I have to say. It's, uh, it's an interesting one. The uh, rewarding feeling of looking down at the list of stuff that you've ticked off because we, we've moved to a, a system where you've got uh, things disappear when you've done them and I like to see those things just to make yes. me feel better about the stuff that I've done. So. There's some good apps out there that do that. Uh, I think knowing you, uh, David, I think you're very similar in that. I think we like to see the outcome of what we've done. So a crossed list is a really good thing. Sounds good. So what's the, we like to ask this one as, as the sort of closing question really. Yeah. So what's the sort of one rule that you live by? Do the right thing. And I think it sounds like an obvious one, but uh, oftentimes we get lost in, in what is good for me, what is good for the company, what is good for that, et cetera, et cetera. We, you need to be abstracting yourself and looking at whatever problem you're facing and saying, you, all of us know inherently what the right answer is. And then uh, act on, and do that rather than thinking, okay, what are the implications? Now you have to mitigate all the other implications, but think about what is right and do that. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, Alessandra, where can people learn a little bit more about what you're doing now? Well, on my profile on LinkedIn, uh, on our website, thepacemakers.net, we can tell you more about that. I, we, we, do, we write a lot of uh, in, insightful, I hope, um, articles that can be shared and happy to share those with you. And, and I'm on Twitter also. Come and see me there. Awesome. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. So that's it for today, but um, thank you very much for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about what we're doing, please subscribe via iTunes. And we really appreciate those reviews. So keep those coming. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.